Hi, you beautiful Texans. <laughs> I love every one of you, and I think you know it. I am Teresa, and I'm a grateful, happy member of Al-Anon. And Willard, wherever you are, I loved your little boy stories, and I think they apply to the little girls, too. I'm just comfortable. I'm neither good nor bad. I'm just comfortable. And this in itself is a miracle. I always have to say I'm happy, I'm comfortable, and I'm grateful because this is such a far cry from Theresa who crashed into your door some 4,000 days ago. I hadn't been happy for such a long time. I don't think I'd smiled for five years. I thought it would be sacrilegious <laughs> under the circumstances. <laughs> I hadn't been comfortable, really comfortable, I don't think, in all my life. There was always this turmoil going on inside. And I certainly wasn't grateful. I thought there was nobody in the world who had less reason to be grateful than I did. Will Rogers used to say, an expert, an authority, is somebody who's 15 miles from home. I'm much more than 15 miles from home. I live on that beautiful beach 10 minutes from our beloved Elson Chuck. But I'm not an authority, and I never will be. And again, I'm like the little boy. I'm the little girl who probably hasn't done too well in school because I have to come back tomorrow. But these tomorrows are so beautiful for me. Every one of them, each and every one of them, that I want to go back, and I always shall. And I'm so glad that in this program we never graduate, that there's always more to learn, that there's always that wonderful love and that wonderful understanding waiting for us. I'm so glad I don't have to graduate, no matter what my circumstances are. Because my circumstances have changed over the years, as those of many of you have. I've had many challenges come into my life along the way, and this program, if I work it one day at a time, to the best of my ability, has the answer for all of them. Not only as a family member, a family member who suffers from the disease of alcoholism, in her own way, but as a human being, as a member of a community, as a member of a nation and a world in which there seems to be lots of confusion and lots of rebellion today. Occasionally, I'm asked to tell what I was like in one or two minutes, in one or two sentences. Oscar Levant was on TV about the time that I came in and I happened to hear him when he said he'd been to the doctor that day to get the report on his physical. And the doctor said, Oscar, I don't know what's eating you, but if you'd been a house, you'd have been condemned. <laughs> and this was the story of my life in a few words at the time that I came in. 
But thank God I wasn't condemned. I was given a reprieve one day at a time because I found you people in time. I had been told just a few weeks before by my doctor and then by my beloved colored mammy who's been with us now for 30 years that if I didn't do something about myself, I'd beat my daughter to Camarillo. My daughter made Camarillo as years passed, but I didn't and I have you people to thank. I was born in the Black Hills of South Dakota and raised more strictly, perhaps, than any little girl who grew up in that pioneer area during those days. The first time my Victorian mother sent me downtown to tend to an errand for her in this little one-block shopping area, she said, Theresa, you will find everything you need on one side of the street. No nice little girl ever walks on the other side of the street, nor does she look over there to see what is going on. And you may know how much curiosity she aroused <laughs> in this active young mind of mine about what was going on behind those closed doors. I've been a chocolate-holic from the start. This is very evident still. There was no painless dentistry in those days, but the pain for me was alleviated to a great extent by the fact that our dentist was upstairs over the First National Bank, and he had one window right in front of that chair, and it commanded a wonderful view of the other side of the street. <laughs> and I was rarely disappointed because I almost always saw a drunken Indian thrown out into the gutter, and then I'd go home, and I'd tell my little brother about this, and we'd hang over the iron fence that surrounded our property. And we'd watch those Indian bucks as they trudged out to the reservation on the outskirts of town. And we gradually became aware of the fact that on the first of the month, when the allotment had arrived from the government, there was always a bottle in the hip pocket. And we'd stand there fascinated as we saw these bucks one after another remove that bottle and imbibe and go stark raving mad before our very eyes. And then the white man told us that the reason our cavalry had gone to Utah to bring the Ute tribe out to our territory was that they'd found an unlimited source of supply near Salt Lake City. And as a result, they'd been on the warpath and they'd scalped some white men. So I knew of the immediate effect of alcohol at an early age, but I thought that only Indians drank. <laughs> my curiosity about the other side of the street had a lot to do with my marriage. I married a six-foot-four twin, handsome, charming, a young attorney, who seemed to have every prospect in the world, but I married him very much against the wishes of my parents, for they told me from the start that this young man was said to be wild. I rationalized then as I did many years thereafter, telling them that he was being given credit for the things that his identical twin brother was doing. <laughs> But it wasn't the twin brother that I took home from the country club not long after my marriage. A more liberally raised friend came to me and she said, Theresa, 
I think you better take Bill home. Very concerned about his health, I proceeded to do so and to nurse him with great solicitation, with great concern over his welfare. I felt that he was desperately sick, that he had a disease of the inner ear because he had lost his equilibrium. <laughs> it's only during these last years in Al-Anon that I have found that my diagnosis at that time was fair and just, that the diagnosis of my parents, of the neighbors, of the minister, of the doctor, of everybody else in this small gossipy town was unfair and unjust. For my husband was a desperately sick man from the start, and his disease progressed at a terrifying rate. At the end of nine years, inhibited, frustrated, frantic, I realized today almost insane as a result of trying to hide this terrifying thing from the community, from the families, from everybody, I had to seek help. I chose my mother-in-law as my confidant, and I know today that I chose her because my mother's discipline, her word, was unquestioned. We did whatever she told us to do. And I went to this frail little woman, just five feet tall, God bless her, this little woman who in her turn had suffered from a disease which had to be hidden too, which was considered a disgrace in that generation, the disease of consumption, which of course we know today to be tuberculosis. And I said to her in my inflexible way, Mother Buell, if you don't reform your son during the next year, I shall have to leave him. And... <laughs> And this in itself gives you some idea of the attitude that I had by this time. Because you see, over the years, I had stopped feeling that this beloved husband of mine was sick. I felt that these terrible, terrible things that were occurring in the family were the result of character defects. It's only during these last years again in Al-Anon that I've come to know that they were symptoms of a deadly, devastating disease, a cunning, baffling, powerful disease that was to influence my life for a long time. My mother-in-law, when I asked her if she could help me, brought all the family skeletons out of the closet for the first time. And to my utter amazement, she said, Theresa, I too am hiding my husband and my 17-year-old son in the back bedroom every day after four. Your husband's twin brother did not die a hero's death in France, as you think. He'd been drinking. He fell off a truck. He was killed. Your father-in-law's five brothers have suffered in a similar way though they went into five different forms of business in five different states. And then she said, I would give anything in the world to help you, but I am powerless. My mother-in-law before me found that she was powerless, and there's nothing I can do. And the wisdom 
of this blessed beloved little woman when she said that is an amazing thing the fact that she accepted the fact that she was powerless that her mother-in-law before her had done this because you see this was still a generation in which Lois's bill was drinking just as heavily as my bill was and Lois was hurting just as I was and there was no answer for any of us a generation in which the stigma and the shame and the disgrace that was attached to alcoholism made life unbearable not only for that poor suffering victim but for every member of his family and so it was God bless her that at the end of that year's time my little mother-in-law helped me pack my things to take a geographical cure I still loved my husband but I rejected him completely I felt as my mother-in-law did that I had to do this to protect my beloved little five-year-old daughter I identify with you alcoholics every inch of the way except that through the grace of God I don't happen to be allergic to alcohol I am allergic in one way as a family member I too have an allergy and an obsession but my allergy is to the alcoholic that my loved ones drink and my obsession is the obsession or has been for two, two generations the obsession to stop this intake at any cost and I come to know on this program that this is insanity that it breeds insanity hysteria I came to California to take this geographical cure for my beloved little daughter feeling that if I came 1500 miles from the scene of action alcohol could never hurt her again in spite of the fact that I was still very much in love with my husband we found a beautiful life in California I later married a man who was a bit older than I whose wife had died of cancer and whose only sorrow in that marriage had been due to the fact that they'd been unable to have children and he took this little girl into his arms and into his heart and he loved her as much as any blood father ever could have and she adored him I realized today that she really chose him for me the younger men with whom I went had children most of them were divorced and they were showing great devotion to these children and she showed jealousy and I was the protective mother who was going to make things comfortable and perfect for her every inch of the way so I married this man who was a beautiful man and a wonderful husband because she wanted me to I was the mother who laid the red carpet from the start always trying to mold the path for the child never allowing that child to grow up and make her own decisions and shape herself for the path of life I never bought her a bicycle because I was so afraid that she would get hurt I tried to do everything in my power all the way along the line to avoid worry for her to avoid illness for her to protect her in every possible way and you all know so well that permissiveness does not develop maturity 
If you are not permitted as you grow up to make the small decisions that come your way, you are incapable of making the biggest decision in life when it is presented to you. Our life was so beautiful, and though I had no worry for her because she was a girl, and though I had not had more children fearing that I would have a boy and he might be afflicted by this disease that had struck the men of the family, it was a source of satisfaction to me and my husband to have her closest friends tell us after she'd been in Stanford for two years that she had no taste for alcohol in any form, that she was one of the two girls in her class who never touched it. She married into the Naval Air Force at the end of this year, married an Annapolis graduate. And the years that followed were years with which many of you were familiar, years of insecurity, of many geographical changes, of inadequate housing, of delay in having children because of the insecurity of the war years. So at the end of the war, though her husband was trained for nothing but this life, they decided to retire and come back to Los Angeles to live where they wanted to have a family and raise them in a secure atmosphere. And for the first six months after their arrival, they lived with us. And she hunted a home along with thousands of other returnees. And he hunted a job along with thousands of other returnees. And it was a discouraging process. And I tried to spare them in every way that I could. And you may know who cleaned their room and their bathroom and their wardrobe. And it was on one of these days, as I cleaned out her wardrobe, that suddenly I saw the most terrifying, the most horrifying thing I've ever seen in my life, that hidden bottle behind her hat. I had seen a few symptoms before and been aware of them, but I knew that I was a square, that I was from another generation and I was very stuffy, and I thought they have so many worries and so many problems. They may be excused if they drink a little bit at parties, but I knew only too well that social drinkers didn't hide their bottles. I hear your alcoholics, as I identify with you again, talk about passing over the invisible line. And in that moment's time, as I stood there horrified, looking at that half-filled bottle, I passed over that hidden line that thread that separated apparent sanity from complete insanity. I was a maniac from that day forward of fighting, terrifying, arguing maniac. I couldn't be with her without crying and bossing and quarreling. For five years, this battle went on. I had made every mistake in our little book of do's and don'ts, our little Al-Anon book that we read to the newcomers. I'd done every don't, and I'd avoided every do with my husband, but it was mere child's play in comparison with the battle which I waged for that daughter, that beautiful only daughter of mine of whom I'd made a god from the very start. For you see, this time I was driven by the most basic instinct in the heart of a mother be she from the animal kingdom or the human kingdom. I was a mother tigress fighting to protect and preserve her young at any cost. 
I still had never heard of alcoholism, strange as it may seem, as a disease. So, of course, I'd never heard of the progress of this disease. But I knew all those levels only too well. My memory was so clear as to all those levels. And I knew at every level what was going to happen at the next level. And in this maniacal battle, I felt at every level that it was up to me to prevent the next one. And you know what had to happen. You can't play God and find him. So I not only lost my God along the way, but I lost my family too. You can't play Sherlock Holmes and build bridges, so I built walls every inch of the way. And then came that New Year's Eve when I moved my beloved grandchildren out to my house without permission and the terrible battle afterwards with my son-in-law. And the result of that battle was that he told me that I no longer was welcome in their home, that they would call me if they cared to talk to me. Now during those years when I couldn't give attention without intention, I had bought them this home, again trying to protect them, feeling so sorry for them because they couldn't find one within their means. And when I bought that home way down inside, I was thinking, I shall always be welcome in it. But my son-in-law was justified when he forbade me to visit their home again. And during the weeks that followed, my blessed daughter lived in her room in central Los Angeles with the curtains pulled, the door locked, fortified by those bottles under her bed. Her mother lived three and a half miles away in West Los Angeles with the curtains pulled, the door locked, refusing to answer the telephone with uncombed hair and unmade bed. Because you see, I was so busy wringing my hands that I couldn't make my bed and I couldn't comb my hair. And the time came when I was fortified by the small pill bottles beside the bed. We had a dedicated, beautiful, beloved family doctor to whom my daughter went when she saw the first symptoms of this terrible thing creeping up on her. And God bless him, he told her that he couldn't help her, that medicine was powerless, that she'd have to find help with her own people. But if he watched me disintegrate, he said, Theresa, if you don't do something about yourself, you're going to go insane. You've got to get some sleep. So he gave me all the sleeping pills that I wanted. And during these days as I lay there, I contemplated being found at the bottom of the pool one morning because I thought life was all over. I had nothing to live for without my family. I had nothing to live for with the future as it appeared to me at that time. But as the miracles begin to come into my life through the timing of my higher power, who knows so much more about timing than we do, I decided that I had to talk to somebody finally, and I went to our young attorney whom we all trusted and loved. And to my utter amazement, when I asked him to change my will, he said to me when I explained the problem, Theresa, let's not change that will yet. It may not be necessary. 
I have found a fellowship just during these last three months that has changed my life. Perhaps I can help. He was so new on your program that his sponsor was still working with him every day. And in those days, very few people would go out on cold turkey calls. The first time Chuck talked to me, he said, does she want help? And I said, no. And he said, well, we'll wait. And this is the way most of the AAs felt when I first came in. But he loaded up those beautiful books that I knew so well because I'd ordered them from the Yale Clinic. And he took them to her house and to his utter amazement, she welcomed him with open arms. And she went to her first meeting that night and she raised her hand. And every night she raised it higher and higher. And she didn't have a drink for several weeks. And then came that day as I was floating on the well-known pink cloud when he called me at 4.30 in the afternoon. And he said, I hate to tell you this, Theresa, but like about 25% of those who come in, Betty Jo has decided that though she knows she's alcoholic, she doesn't question this. She feels that she isn't alcoholic enough for AA. She feels that she can handle her drinking herself, and she's going to try to prove it to us. And I crashed into a thousand pieces, and he knew I would. And he said, will you go to a meeting with me tonight? I didn't know where I was going. I'd never heard of Al-Anon, and I didn't care. And when I hear our beloved Chuck C. say that had it been necessary for him in order to find and retain this program to go to Timbuktu or Africa and leave behind him everything that had ever meant anything to him, his family, his country, his business, his home, his all, he would have had to have done it. I know what he means because I'd have gone any place in the world that night where there was a ray of hope, where there was just a little bit of light because for five years I had dragged this poor sick girl around to every form of help of which I'd ever heard. And I always say we went because this is what it was. I never gave her the dignity of finding her own way in her own time. I never had the patience to wait for this. I played God every inch of the way. I took her to sanitariums for three months at a time, to psychiatrists, to hospitals to interviews, to healers, to three different churches, to everything of which I'd ever heard. And there all the time in the back of my mind, I thought if everything else fails, there's AA. Well, when I found that she wasn't going back to AA, you see, I had no place to turn. And God was taking care of me. I had rejected him completely, feeling that he had deserted me. But he timed my arrival, and I shall thank him for this every day of my life. Because I was self-willed, gun riot. If I'd come one day earlier, when she was still going to AA, I might have left, and I might not have come back. But you see, as it was, I crashed out of that pink cloud onto your doorstep, and you opened the door, and I fell in. And as I look back, it's as if I laid my heart right out on the table at that first meeting for you to do with as you please. And you healed that heart. And you healed my soul. And you healed my body. I went back to this beloved doctor six months later. And he said, Theresa, have you found a new doctor? He couldn't believe his eyes. I was smiling, wonder of wonders. And I said, yes, I have. And he said, what's his name? And I said, Alanon. 
And he said, Al who? <laughs> I send him literature every little while, and he gives it out in quantities. He'd never heard of Al-Anon before, but his faith in Al-Anon is just as great as yours is and as mine is. I'd had my eyes tested for glasses five times in a year and a half, and I still couldn't read. And I thought none of the doctors in Los Angeles were any good. It never occurred to me that you couldn't cry 24 hours a day and have good eyes. I'd had my gallbladder and the gallstones removed because I had those terrible convulsions constantly in my stomach. And the convulsions continued. But you see, it was only after I found you people that I knew that the pain came from the stones in my heart, not the stones in my gallbladder. And only you people and the higher power whom you eventually channeled to me could remove the stones from that heart of mine. I had absolute implicit faith in you and your program from the very start. I was very sick that night. I saw almost nothing. I heard almost nothing. But I felt the emanation of something in that room of which I'd never been aware before in my life. A love, an understanding that made me know that I'd come home. And from the very start, you were my family. I belonged to you, and you belonged to me. And I've never varied from this course for one minute from that day to this. If anybody'd been to one more Al-Anon meeting than I had, she knew everything. And I'd do anything she told me to, no matter what it was. <laughs> After all this time, I'd only make one change in all our literature. And UAAs don't need to resent this because it doesn't affect your program. We have some enemies, some Al-Anon enemies, the last of which is dictatorship. And at the end of the little paragraph of dictatorship, it says, we don't promote, we merely invite your attendance in a common cause. And I can't read that. Without making a mistake, I always say we merrily invite your attendance <laughs> instead of merely. Because this is the way for, it's been for me. There are no fringe benefits. They're so big I can't ever speak of them as fringe benefits. They're so fabulous. Everything I've found, everything that has come to me, I've loved every inch of the way. I've loved every minute of the way. And I've loved every kiss along the way. And I've needed all of them. I was so lonely. I hurt so. I'd beaten my head against that stone wall so long. My higher power, as I told you, was with me that night, even though I had rejected him, thinking he'd deserted me. And though I was so sick that I didn't recognize two good friends in the meeting, I didn't hear any steps or traditions or anything that the speaker said. He cleared my mind for those few moments so that I could hear the one thing I had to hear if I was to change my life. I heard you say, give me the serenity, God, to accept the things I cannot change. And in that moment of clarity, I knew that never in my headstrong life had I accepted anything or anybody that I didn't like. I rejected the people I didn't like, 
and I fought the things I didn't like. And I wore a halo every inch of the way, feeling that my pioneer father, who'd gone to the Black Hills in a stagecoach, would be proud of me. And you know that halo had given a headache to everybody who came in contact <laughs> with me. That night changed my life completely, just as it has the life of the Skid Row alcoholic. And I feel that I had hit my Skid Row. I thought for just a little while, if she had stayed on the AA program, stayed in AA, life would always have been beautiful. But you all know better, and I know better today, because you convinced me of this. I'd have stayed on that pink cloud looking down towards earth for my security, for my happiness, for any serenity that I might seek. And I never would have found them because I'd been placing that responsibility on the shoulders of another human being. And this is too much of a burden to place on anyone's shoulders, especially the shoulders of an alcoholic. They told me right from the start to put away the telescope and to get out the mirror, to stop focusing on my poor sick daughter, to stop focusing on her disease, and to look at me. And when I took my inventory, it was unbelievable. I just couldn't believe it. Because you see, I thought there was nothing wrong with me, that if she stopped drinking, I'd be just fine. And when newcomers come to us today, and they say this to me, I remember how I hurt, and when I think they're not coming back, I start hurting for them, and I try to think of something that may help them. I can't tell them why the Al-Anon program works. I don't know, and I don't care. I just know it does work. If we are willing to do what I was told to do from the start, to stand aside and let God's will be done, we're relieved of personal anxiety and a mistaken sense of responsibility. And then I like to tell them a little story that I just love, a story that Mrs. Edison wrote years ago, in which she said that she and Mr. Edison were walking down the street in their hometown one day when they were stopped by a strange lady who asked Mr. Edison, what is electricity? And this greatest wizard of all time Keeping his program simple, replied, Madam, it is. Use it. And that's the way I feel about Alan. It is. At my third meeting, when I finally dried my tears, I asked the two blessed young women who were leaving how long it would take to get my daughter back to AA. And thank God they didn't pamper me. You know, you have to hit the mule in the head to get his attention. And I'd had sympathy before, but I had never been told in as uncertain terms as I was then, and this was necessary. This darling girl who is now head of the Al-Anon group at the Committee on Alcoholism in Los Angeles said, in no uncertain terms, pulling me up by the bootstraps, Teresa, if this is your reason for coming, you may be disappointed. But if you are coming to find a comfortable, happy, secure, even serene way of life for yourself, 
and you're just willing to try to work these 12 steps that AA has loaned to us one day at a time, we can guarantee help for you. And these steps have worked for me every inch of the way, just as they have for the hundreds of thousands of those who suffered directly from the disease of alcoholism. They said, take your hands off and close your mouth. And this wasn't easy for me. <laughs> but I knew I had to do it. And I tried to do it to the best of my ability. And I'm so glad they said, if you're just willing to try to the best of your ability, because I had no ability at that time, I have very little today. But you see, because I was beaten completely, because I had landed on my knees and was so desperate, I was willing to try. And I have been every inch of the way. The sponsor whom I chose that night, unknowingly, the sponsor to whom I went immediately after the meeting, this serene-looking girl my daughter's age, whom I went to because she had a rosebud mouth and beautiful skin and a happy smile, and a serene expression. I went to her and I said, how long has your husband been on AA? And she said, I've lived with a practicing alcoholic for 17 years. And this sponsor, who couldn't have gotten rid of me if she'd locked me up, took me to meetings every night of the week because she knew I was too sick to survive more than 24 hours. And then she took me to the 6300 Club on Sunday. I'm so glad there were only three Al-Anon meetings in the Beverly Hills area because she took me to AA the other night. And I thought she went because she needed to, that she'd gone right along. She'd never been before. We even got into a closed meeting by mistake. <laughs> Our first week. And uh, a retired admiral's wife came up and asked us if we were alcoholics. And we said no. And she said, well, then you'll have to leave. And there was a darling retired admiral. This was up in Ma Malibu, where there's so many retired Navy people. And he said, they qualify. Let them stay. <laughs> she said, I just heard them laughing because the sick one finally thought she could drive her car tonight. And when she was shuffling with a soiled handkerchief, it dawned on her that she dropped her keys down the clothes chute. <laughs> so that's how I got to stay at my first AA meeting. But you alcoholics have helped me just as much as my beloved Al-Anon friends have. Al-Anon told me that this was a disease, that you proved it to, you proved it to me. You still do it every meeting. I look at the miracle in your eyes, those eyes through which the soul shines. And I hear the miracle in your stories, and I know this is a disease. I've never questioned it for a second since I came in. And I know that I didn't cause this disease and that I can't cure it. And I try to convince you of this. If you doubt in any way, I say, I sit in the second seat, the first seat in the second row at the Wednesday night AA meeting every week, right behind Chuck C. And I think maybe you better join me there and they'll prove to you that this is a disease. This is something of which we have to be convinced before we can release and release with love. The miracles that came to me immediately after I found the program are just unbelievable. I hadn't talked to my daughter for weeks because I was waiting for her to call. And the phone rang just a few weeks after I came in. And it was my Betty Jo and we talked for an hour and a half and there was no crying and there was no quarreling. 
And I hadn't intended to tell her about AA and Al-Anon because I thought she'll think I'm pointing a finger at her as an alcoholic. But my higher power took over. And I heard my saying, Honey, I love you as much or more than ever. But I'm trying to understand the disease which I know now you have. I'm going to continue to try to learn everything I can about it. I'm going to try to put away that telescope and get out the mirror and face me. I've made every mistake in the book, but I'm going to try to do better from now on. And our communication in the years that followed got better and better along the way. It was just beautiful. At my first AA meeting, I heard someone say, if for some reason you can't accept our program or some other form of help, there are only two alternatives, death or insanity. My grandchildren and I thank God today for the fact that after those many years of enslavement through which my daughter went through such torture as an alcoholic, it was not necessary for her to be further shackled by insanity. We lost her after I'd been on the program for five years. My grandchildren were living with me at this time, and my beloved and blessed little granddaughter, who had just qualified for Alateen and been going for a short time, when I told her this tragedy, threw her arms around me, and she said, Nana, Brad and I are going to need you more than ever now. Does this mean you have to give up, Alanon? We love you the way you are today. We never want you to be the way you used to be. And with a challenge like this, you know that I shall always be coming back. I need the program just as much as I ever have. My grandchildren, like many of you whom I've heard speak from the podium, decided at an early age that they'd never touch alcohol in any form because of the sorrow and the tragedy that it had brought to them. But we know that children don't learn through our mistakes. If they had, it would have been a perfect world generations ago. No war, no alcoholism, no drugs. But they have to learn just as we had to learn through their mistakes. And we have to stand aside and love them enough to let them make these mistakes. We have to let them find their own way if they're going to mature. This is the way they grow. This is the way we grow. This is the way we all mature. And I thank God for the fact that with your help and that of my higher power, I can stand aside today and love them and keep communication with them and let them grow. I don't warn them or threaten them as I warned and threatened their mother. But as they experiment now that they're getting older, I feel that they have the only insurance known to man. They have been to Alateens enough to understand this program. They have attended Al-Anon and AA meetings with us. My blessed little granddaughter left school in Boston her last weekend when her favorite bull was coming to visit her to come to the Blossom Festival in Niagara Falls when Chuck and Elsa and I went there to see. She spent that last weekend in school with her grandmother in the honeymoon suite in Niagara Falls. <laughs> she attended every meeting. As a result of the newcomers meeting in Toronto, at which I was given the wonderful privilege of speaking, I have a baby in Canada who had started a group as a memorial to my daughter. And they had their first anniversary 
during that conference. And they asked before we went out if Elton Chuck and I would speak, and then they asked if my granddaughter would speak. And she felt she'd been away from the program for a year and shouldn't. But when the time came, she asked if she might. And it was the most beautiful talk at the conference. Chuck thought so too, so I'm just not prejudiced. <laughs> my grandchildren wouldn't come to dinner just before I found this program. And I found out why a couple of years after I arrived. I was driving out on a busy, busy freeway at six at night to speak at the West Covina anniversary meeting. And I turned on the radio to divert me in the traffic and I heard Abby Lane say, I just received a letter from a little girl and she said, every time I try to burn a candle, my mother puts it out with her tears. And then I remembered how I'd been the devoted grandmother who was so full of fun and had taken them on picnics and saved jokes and cartoons for them and played games with them. And suddenly when they needed security, as they'd never needed it before in their lives, when they'd go out to dinner one night a week and come to my house, come from a home where there was illness and insecurity and confusion and sometimes even abuse, I met them at the door with runs in my stockings and no makeup and uncombed hair, crying my heart out and apologizing. And I knew why they hadn't come to dinner. Today, my blessed little Sherry visits me at every opportunity. And she almost invariably comes back after she's gotten into her, the car to go home and she'll say, Nana, always be as happy as you are today because it rubs off on us. My little grandson came up to Laguna Beach. He was working in San Diego this summer and had one day a week off. And he always spends that day up at my beach. And he found for the first time that I was very sick, the first time since I'd been in Alamon. I had a temperature of 104. And he was very concerned. And though I pretend that there was nothing wrong, he knew better. And he hated to leave that night to go back to work. At 8 the next morning, he arrived beaming. And he said, you know, Nana, when Gramps died, I told you you could always depend on me. And he said, I came back to take care of you. I resigned from my job. I've gotten another one that begins on Wednesday. I have three days to take care of you. And he watered the plants. And he brought me fruit juice. And he loved me. And you know how that love lowered my temperature fast. So this is my relationship with these children today. I love them with all my heart, but I don't make gods of them. And I don't expect them to be perfect. Of course, they, they are all <laughs> My little granddaughter was married since I was in Texas the last time, since I went to Cedar Glen. She called me last summer when they became engaged, and she had had this wonderful, beautiful young man down at the beach the weekend before. And everybody but the two of them knew that they were in love. And she said, we've decided we're in love. We want to get married. And she had decided, they had, that they'd be married three weeks after she returned from Europe and she was leaving in a week and she wanted a wedding for 500 people. <laughs> and if you alcoholics want to know why we don't have birthday cakes in Al-Anon, I'll tell you, I showed immediately why we don't have birthday cakes. I had the worst slip you can imagine. I rushed into town to meet her to buy the invitations fast and she couldn't decide whether she wanted them in ivory or white. And she couldn't decide between two different scripts. And the old Theresa came out. The old Theresa, who rang all four elevator bells, couldn't wait for the first one. <laughs> 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 
the old Teresa, who never bought more than two gallons of gas because she couldn't sit still long, long enough to fill her tank. And I pushed her so hard she sent me home. And that night she called and she said, I think maybe we'd better get the wedding supervisor. And I said, I think so too. And this was the best news I'd had for a long time. Well, everything went beautifully. From then on until the night of the wedding. And I was standing in the back of the church on the arm of my six foot three grandson, bless his heart, age 18, waiting to get the signal to go down the aisle and it was a half an hour late. And the wedding supervisor, who supervised every big wedding in Los Angeles for 20 years and isn't thrown by anything, came down with her hair standing on end. And she said, Mrs. Green, one of the members of the party won't put her dress on. Shall I go without her? <laughs> I knew this person, and I knew her well enough she wouldn't get left at any cost, and I was afraid she might come down just as she was to catch up with her. <laughs> Oh, this program was wonderful. I said, this is the bride's problem. And what a relief this was. And I've been afraid I might cry as I walked down with this beautiful grandson of mine, but you can imagine how we chuckled as we went down. And then I looked back at this beautiful girl who looked so like her mother. And again, I was afraid I might cry, and I knew they didn't want me to. There are always tears behind my laughter and laughter behind my tears, and they're all healers, but this wasn't the time for it. And then the minister said, this young couple has asked me to read the chapter on marriage from the prophets before I conduct this ceremony. This is my favorite book outside the program. My granddaughter has spent the previous weekend with me at the beach and the prophet is always on the guest room table. And I found her reading it at 3.30 in the morning and I said, do you love it as I do? And she said, yes, and I'd given it to her. And as he read that few, those beautiful passages that apply to all relationships, not just the relationship between husband and wife, let there be spaces in your togetherness, and let the winds of the heavens dance between you. Love one another, but make not a bond of thy love. You know what happened. My higher power came right down into my pew, and he put his hand on my shoulder, and I didn't have to cry. I was the happiest one at that wedding. Bless their hearts, I visited them since then. And my little granddaughter, who was showing evidence of a good deal of trouble before she got married, said to me, you noticed we didn't serve drinks last night. We serve wine when we have guests for dinner, but we don't serve any hard liquor anymore. You know my husband comes from a three-generation alcoholic family, too. And we think this is wise that the only time we drink is when we go out. And we've been out three times in the three months that we've been married. And of course, this is beautiful. And the fact that she'd talk it over with me was beautiful. This is for today. For today, life is just beautiful. My grandson told me on his last trip that he'd given up smoking because he found he didn't ha his breath wasn't as good for surfing when he smoked. And also, it was expensive and he knew it wasn't good for him. And all these things are wonderful today, but I live one day at a time. I see these young people come in and I thank God for them. I thank God for every single one who comes in so early because I think of all the beautiful days they have ahead. I can do nothing about the length of my life, but because I've been guided by you people in this higher power whom you channel to me, I can do something about the depth of it. 
and it's beautiful every inch of the way. I've even changed my vocabulary. My life is no longer full of problems, responsibilities, worries. Today it's full of opportunities, privileges. I went to a round robin not long ago at which they were discussing responsibilities. And uh, after they had called on the little girl whom I had taken to speak for our group, they ran out of speakers and somebody said, let's hear from Teresa. And again, I had a slip. I have a thing about the word responsibility, and I have had for a long time. My life was so governed by a mistaken sense of responsibility for so long. I thought I had responsibility for the behavior of my daughter, her husband, everybody but me. And I don't like that word. And I thought, do I dare say this or will I lose any image I have? And then I knew that I had to be honest. And I said, you're going to be shocked. I guess I'm the nonconformist. I guess I'm the hippie of the Medicare group. <laughs> but I don't have any responsibilities today. I just have privileges and opportunities and challenges. And this is one of the most beautiful challenges I've ever had in my life to come back again so soon. I went home after Cedar Glen and I had to take the fifth step to my group and I said I fell in love with every alcoholic man in that part of Texas. And then I said, but the women tolerated me just as you do because they knew I loved them just as much. And this is true. So I want to thank you all for letting me come again so soon. And I hope you'll come to California because I'll tell you secretly, I don't think there's any greater AA or Al-Anon or love anywhere than there is in California and Texas. And I love each and every one of you. And I'm so glad I'm not out with those abnormalities my age who don't have any program, who are so bored with life, all retired and saying, I married him for better or worse, but not for lunch, and now I've got him for lunch. <laughs> or else in their children's hair and then their children call me and say can't you do something and I'll say go out and drink a little more and I'll see what I can do <laughs> so I can tell you honestly and from the bottom of my heart I love everybody today I hated everybody when I came in I had no communication with God or man but I, I love everybody but I love alcoholics and members of Al-Anon the most and I always shall and I go to bed every night with Father Ken's beautiful little prayer on my lips. Dear God, let me be a channel for thy love. And tell me, please, when I get in the way. God bless you.